You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. We'll reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. The most tragic result is that Israel was no longer God's people but they would simply be among the nations as everyone else. Whereas once they were distinguished, even though they were small, even though there wasn't much that they could hold in pride, the one thing that they could say is they were God's people. They were chosen. He set them apart. What he's saying now is the natural outflow of their disobedience is God would just allow them to go, go in rebellion, go in disobedience, and now you're going to wander out and just be like everyone else. You're not going to have a relationship with me. This is spiritual annulment. it's really tragic. But the thing is, as tragic as it is, even in this deteriorated state here, Hosea is about God's faithfulness to his people. As much as they've stepped out on him, as much as they've been unfaithful, as much as they've been adulterers, God is still faithful to his bride, to his people. That even as they have chosen to be adulterers, their bridegroom desires to take them back. God will make this relationship right again, and he will reestablish love. How does God reestablish love here? The first step, we see that this path to love involves repentance. Repentance is really the first step towards this path to reestablishing love here. Let me read from Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Because you've got to understand, the words that we're reading here of God restoring the people, it will happen. But you need to know this. The Assyrian uh, Empire, they did eventually destroy Israel. It actually happened a few years after the prophecy that we read here of Hosea's writing. God took their sin very seriously. But still, God would use Hosea to graciously call the people to repentance. It's a reminder for us that there is no sin that is so grave that that God will not forgive the repentant sinner. Amen? There is no sin that is so horrendous that God cannot forgive those who come in repentance. And and church, I guess uh, the reason why I want to say this, and we need to continually uh, remind ourselves is this, we need to be a church culture that we actively fight for this community of repentance. We need to be a church culture that we we actively, diligently um, fight to create a culture of repentance. What this means is... um, Again, I don't know all of your experience in church, but at least from what I've seen and from what I've lived, church was often the place where I was the least honest with who I am. That was just me growing up, because I was a horrendous person. I still have a horrendous person, I just know how to hide it a little better, and grace of God, right? But church was often the place where I got to clean myself up, I got to talk a different way than I normally do during the week. Oh, I better like keep, keep check on the way I express myself because church is the place where we're supposed to be holy. And again, we are, but we go there and we're not honest with our sin. 
But as a church, what we need to do, guys, is we need to fight to say, this needs the place where we can, this has got to be the place where we can actually be the most honest with our sin. This has to be the place where we set a culture where it's safe to be able to say, you know what? This is how I totally jacked up my life this week. And maybe no one saw it because it was more internal. But man, I was disobedient in my life. Man, I was rebellious. Man, you should have seen some of the evil thoughts that coursed through my brain. Man, my marriage was this horrendous. Like, no way would we reflect God. Man, you should have seen the kind of parent I was. But praise God that he walks me back with grace. A cultural repentance is one where we don't accept sin as the norm and say, oh yeah, well, you know, let's just be real. It's never about just being real, but it's about being real with our sin so God can truly continue to lead us back into healing. And that's where repentance needs to be. And guys, you need to really set that culture. Like when you're with other people, don't just settle for like the the polite discussions. Don't just settle for the things that like, oh yeah, you know what? Oh, how how the O's doing? Oh, O's, man. Oh, they need a better pitching. Oh oh, man, so getting so hot now. Oh yeah, summer weather. Man, sometimes that can be like the extent of our conversation in Baltimore, right? O's, Ravens, oh, weather, cold, hot, snow, weather. And guys, as a church, we need to desire more. We need to be a culture where the people who are walking with you can say, you know what, man, I, this is a safe place where I can be honest with the things I'm going through. And some of it's not sin, some of it's just brokenness. But we can be honest with the things we're going through and set a culture where others feel safe to share it with us as well. And you know how that happens? When a few people start doing that. It, it never starts from just me talking about it. Yeah, guys, let's be a culture of repentance. Amen. And we just start talking about the O's and the Ravens and the weather. <laughs> have, you, have you ever been in those um, community groups or like smaller group meetings where um, if people start talking, they're like, yeah, you know what, man? Yeah, I just had a really, really hard week. I was just really grumpy this week. Man, I was just grumpy. I was not, a, I was not nice. And someone else, they'll, oh, yeah, me, I was not grumpy. I was grumpy, too. I'm not feeling good. But, uh, no one's really going to share very openly. But have you ever been in those groups where someone just, like, laid outside, and they just, like, you're like, whoa, are we allowed to talk like that in church? But have you noticed how after that happens, everyone else feels this freedom to kind of talk openly about what they're struggling with? Because we battle this perception that we cannot truly be open with our sin in church. Because people will condemn us. And, and the truth is, some of you, the reason why you don't want to be very open, you've been part of church cultures where you have been condemned. Let's, can we be real? Sometimes, <laughs> this is the conundrum, right? Because in church we say, be open, be real, be honest. And you are honest. And people are like, ooh, not that honest. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can handle that much honesty, sorry. Well, so we've got to commit to say, we're willing to hear the junk, but we are still going to wrap our arms around you and hug you tight. And say, let's pray to God together. Amen? Amen. We need a culture of repentance. Because that's what God is inviting through Hosea to the people. Saying, yeah, you guys are jacked up. Man, you are stepping out on me. You are way more jacked up than you even realize. But the path to repentance is always there. I want to restore you. And as repentance brings us along this path of love, it then leads to restoration. The path of love leads us to restoration. And man, this book is full of judgment. And I think that's one of the reasons some people don't like to read the Minor Prophets, because it just feels like God is yelling at you all the time, right? 
I mean, it feels like the Simpsons caricatures of who God is, like this angry, big, like, like he's just mad at you all the time. Oh, I like the Jesus. I like baby Jesus, especially. Like, you nice and cuddly. I don't like Old Testament God because he's just mad all the time. Man, he's like my mean uncle. That guy was always grumpy. That's Old Testament God. That's minor prophets God. So yeah, there's, there's judgment here. But we cannot miss the abundant hope that is also there right along with it. Yeah, there's judgment, but there is great hope. And you got to know, they deserve judgment. Why was there judgment? Because they deserve judgment. But there is great hope here. Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Yet the number of of the children of Israel shall be like the land of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is one of the most amazing, impressive promises of God. Did you notice where this is? This is Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. This is right after the introduction that we read in the beginning, where God basically said, yeah, you're my adulteress, or through Hosea, you're marry this adulterous wife, and then you're going to have these kids, and you're going to have weird names, like not my people. But then what happens here? He says, the hope is you will one day again be my people. Don't just stop at verse 9 and see angry God. See angry God, but yet see how he's going to fix it. Yeah, these kids got weird names, like not my people, and like just jacked up stuff. But eventually he says, what? You are going to be my children. You're not going to be able to count how many you are because I'm that faithful to you. And, and you know how you're all divided right now between Israel and Judah? One day you're going to be, bra- be brought back together again under one head. And, and some cults might want to tell you that's like different cult figures. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings them back together. And great will be the glory of the Lord. Another of the great uh, words of hope from Hosea chapter 2, verse, verses 14 to 23. And this is a little long, but I want to read the whole thing because I think it is so beautifully amazing here. Chapter 3, starting verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Do you love the relational language here? God woos his bride. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as, as, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Catch that. He's saying, you're not even going to be able to remember all those things you used to give yourself to. All you're going to have desire for is your true husband. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you. You catch this marital language. Continue over and over. Yes, we were married. Yes, you stepped out of me. Yes, I, you have no reason for me to take you back. But I will betroth you. I will betroth you. I will betroth you. I will make you mine. I am committed to this relationship. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. Did you catch that? They were called no mercy, but he will have mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is a beautiful love letter. God desires to restore this relation with this bride who's gone astray. And he will make her his again. And Hosea himself, he learned this. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. God was teaching Hosea God's own heart. He was saying, you are going to take back this woman who did everything horrible in this relationship. She did not live up to what she should have, yet you are going to express love to her. And man, these are just such powerful illustrations of this relationship God has with us. And even as you and I are reading this and listening to it, um, I I wonder who we most identify with in these stories. Um, I'll I'll tell you, when I was preparing this, my mind would immediately go to stories, and and I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of stories, whether from myself or other people, who desired to love someone who was unfaithful to them. Like, I remember stories of a friend of mine uh, in college. He liked this one girl a lot, like a lot, And she was just blatantly cheating on him. Like over and over again. Like he, and they would reconcile, but then she would go out again and do it. And like everyone knew it. It wasn't a secret, right? And then, but he would still continue to love her. And, and you know, in my human mind, I'm like, man, you're such an idiot. Why would you do something like that? That's not, she's taking advantage of you. She's horrible. She's abusing you. She doesn't understand love. And yet all he could say is, I love her so much. And, you know, maybe we have stories like that. Maybe you even go in your mind to ideas of maybe it's not relational, like in a, um, a marriage kind of relationship sense, but maybe it's just you go to, man, it is just so hard to love some people. And maybe as you listen to this, you're like, man, I cannot believe how much God loves because I've tried to love people who are hard to love. Man, you want to know who's hard to love? This guy sitting right next to me right now. I'm not going to say it out loud, but this guy's hard to love. I can understand what God is saying when he looks at Hosea and Gomer. I really understand him. Lord, thank you for this word picture. Um, and, and maybe we have that, right? Maybe we have illustrations of how it is difficult for us to love those who've betrayed our trust, those who haven't lived up to relationship. But guys, I think what we have to say is we need to look at the story and realize we're not Hosea. We're actually Gomer. Gomer is us. I know some of you don't want to identify with Gomer. Gomer is us. Because we are the ones who God has loved. We are, and, 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 and let's also be clear here. I think what the prophecy is speaking to, this is not speaking to those outside the church so much. Like, it's easy for us to look at all of these different lists of sins and say, this is all the jack the people who don't know God. Yeah, don't be like them. No, this is actually talking to those in the church. And saying, you are, more than anyone, you are the ones who know the extent of how much God loves you. 
I don't expect better from those who are pagans who don't know God. I expect them to be all jacked up. That's just normal. They don't know God. You should know better. You have experienced the fruit of God loving you. You've experienced his forgiveness. You've experienced when you were at your pits and he took you and rescued you and made you his own. You have experienced the lavishness of worshiping and be able to sing his praise. You have experienced the blessing of him providing for you when you did not have. You have experienced and tasted his wonderful glory. And yet you still choose to go to other gods. We are Gomer. We know how good God is, and yet we have different things that we choose to worship instead of God. And that sounds like bad news, and and it is, but we need to remember in the midst of us being Gomer, there's a good thing about us being Gomer because God promises good hope to Gomer. As jacked up as Gomer was, what does God eventually do for Gomer? He makes her the bride again. He gives her this man, Hosea, who will go love her, who will make her his own. And and the common thought throughout this book, and I, I, I hope you caught it, this is not what anyone is doing to make this relationship right. It's not like Gomer came down on her knees before Hosea and said, Hosea, I know I've really messed things up. I'm so sorry for being adulterous. I'm so sorry for being unfaithful. It's not like the children that said, hey, uh, Daddy, I'm so sorry that we, like, we were part of this bad marriage and we didn't have any part of this, but we're so sorry we did this. is not the people of Israel repenting before God saying, Lord, forgive us for our sin, forgive us for our, our thievery and for our lying, for our murder and for our adultery. Lord, would you have compassion on us? This was not the result of some big revival meeting where the people of Israel gathered together and said, yo, look, God is really angry. We better get our stuff together. That was not what happened at all. If they were still still rebellious. They were still jacked up. They were still going in the wrong direction. And God intervened. This had nothing to do with how faithful they were. This had nothing. God was not responding to their repentance. Their repentance came because God reached out to them first. Because God is the one who has done the work here. He has done. He is the one who has reached out. And this is really good news for us because it reminds us of this whole beautiful picture of the gospel. It reminds us of this whole beautiful p- picture of the good news of Jesus. That what we see is for the Christian, the Christian is never about us being faithful, us being good so that God will love us. The Christian faith is we are actually much more jacked up than we realize. We are much more unfaithful. And I know some of us, we can hide it really well, right? Because we're not out there like, like a pushing drugs. Or we're not out there like beating up people. We're not out there like stealing and robbing stores. We're not out there like stealing people's garbage cans. You know, and, and personal stuff, right? Uh, we're, we're not like doing stuff like that. So it's easy to say like, we're not sinners. We're not adulterers. But this is a hard issue. Like let me ask any married man or woman out here. What would I tell you if I told you, you know what? Your spouse, they will never physically be unfaithful to you. They will never, they're never going to do that. They're never going to physically be with another person, but they're going to be thinking it their whole life. Their heart's always going to be there. They're looking at your face, but they're picturing someone else. I mean, they're not going to physically cheat on you, but they're not with you. Um, I don't think too many of us would be honored by that kind of relationship. We'd be like, oh, no, heck no. (laughs) 
Covenant relationship is like holistic. It's not just body. It's not just my actions. It's my soul. It's my desire. And God wants a bride whose whole desire is for him as well. And praise God, Jesus is the one who gave his whole life so that we can have that kind of relationship with God. Because we were never faithful. We were never faithful enough. But Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. When we were not faithful, he was faithful. When we were not obedient, he was obedient. When we were not pure, he was pure. When we were selfish, he was generous. And he died the death that we deserved for our sins. It's really captured in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Catch that. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That's the story of our hope, guys. And that's what we run to. So let me ask you to stand with me right now. And I want to give you very um, specific ways for you to respond right now as you sit, be- stand before the Lord. For some of you, if you're not a Christian, uh, if you're here and you're here joining us for worship, but you would confess you're not a Christian, what I want to welcome you to do is say, Christianity is not just about acting a little better, but it's a transformation of the heart. And God takes sin seriously. And I want to welcome you to know the God who transforms not just our actions, but our desires as well. But guys, we got to be very clear. God hates sin. I know judgment is not a popular thing in our culture, but it's real. And I want to welcome you and invite you. If you do not know Jesus who takes your place, why do we love this thing called a cross so much? It's not because we're people who like grisly stuff, but on the cross we believe Jesus died the death that we deserve. Jesus died and paid the penalty for sin so that you and I wouldn't have to. If you are not a Christian, I would invite you to receive that salvation today. Say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And and take a step to do that. If you are a Christian, and I'm going to say this very carefully, but lovingly, don't mess around with God. I think one of my fears sometimes, or maybe I don't want to say fears, worries as a pastor, is that in church, we can get really good at kind of creating a good external veneer. We can come here week to week, come to groups. We know the right answers. We know the things to say so that people will not think we're jacked up. And in our souls, there's just a lot of mess. So I say this with a pastoral heart. This is not judgment. This is good news offered to you. But good news needs to come with repentance. Don't live with your sin. Are you struggling particularly? Some of your sin is very obvious. I mean, we can see it. We can tell you. But a lot of our sin, I think, is more internal. It's our hearts. Are there things that, if they would be revealed in this place, you would be kind of ashamed? This is not to shame you. But rather, bring those things to God. Because the good news about God is he doesn't get shocked by our sin. 
He doesn't get shocked by the things that maybe would shock anyone else. But Christian, if you are living with hidden sin in your life, repent that before God today. Be restored. And I want to give one more to some of you. Some of you, you have a very real recognition of your sin. You're not messing around with your sin. You are like petrified. Like some of you can't sleep at night because of your sin. You live in guilt and shame and condemnation. And can I say in this way, if that's you, this is such amazingly good news. Because what this says is that Jesus is the one who has paid the price. That means if you are struggling with wondering, am I doing enough? You can stop because you can never do enough. It's what Jesus has done. And you need to sit in that. And you need to rest in that. And you need, and again, I'm not saying don't take sin seriously, but maybe you're like giving sin too much power. So all of us are at different points. Some of us are not giving enough credence to our sin. You need to take your sin a little more seriously. Some of us are giving our sin too much power. And you need to know Jesus has conquered sin. And if that's you, rest in the grace of Jesus Christ to know that he loves you. Nothing can take you away from him if, you're, if he's yours. And praise him for that. Amen? Amen? Join me in prayer. Lord, help us wherever we are. Maybe one of those different things. Maybe some of us, we need to know Jesus. We need to receive him today. We need our sins forgiven. We would confess that we have been far from you. That we don't know you. Help those to trust in Jesus today. Take a step that way. Others of us, Lord, we do know Jesus. We would say we're a Christian, but we've been living a secret life. Whether it is a secret life of, of hidden proclivities, of hidden, hidden lusts, hidden addictions, maybe certain behaviors that are not expressing outwardly. Maybe they are, but maybe they're internally driven. Maybe there's anger. Whatever it might be, Lord, I pray you would help us to take our sin that much more seriously. See, that sin is what caused Jesus to suffer. And yet, we, are, we would be able to come repent in freedom. Help some of us to do that honestly today. And for others of us, Lord, would you bring freedom in this place? We have been crippled by our sin. We've been wondering if we're going to make it or not. And Lord, would you remind us that we could never make it on our own? That's why we need Jesus. And we would praise Jesus for doing what we could not do. So Lord, speak to us in a room like this in as many ways that we need to hear it, all for your own glory. So help us, Lord. Help us. So I invite you to pray in one of those three ways, whatever might be applicable for you. And as you've prayed, if you're a Christian, I would invite you to come up and be reminded of what Jesus has done through what we call the Lord's Supper. As you take a piece of the wafer, you're reminded of the broken body of Christ. And you dip it in the cup and you remind of how Jesus forgives us. It's through the shedding of his blood and you rejoice as you take this. But it would also sober you about your sin. We would not play around with our sin because it affects relationship. So pray first. I would think, don't come up right away. Pray first. And when you're ready as a Christian, come up and you can receive the Lord's Supper as we respond.